Section 6 of The Lieutenant and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. The Lieutenant and Others by Sapper. James and the Landmine. A comparatively truthful account of an unpleasing episode. The reasons in triplicate which I gave to the general as to why the landmines had exploded at the wrong time are neither here nor there. Officially he accepted them, but it was all very trying and entirely due to James. James is a great thorn in my side. He always has been. He is always doing unexpected things, thereby causing much alarm and despondency among everyone who has the doubtful pleasure of his acquaintance. The last time I saw him before the war was at the Pitchley Hunt Ball some eighteen months ago, and though I hesitate to give the incident which occurred there, in view of possible doubts being cast on my veracity, and also because of its apparently trifling nature, yet its connection with the sad failure of the landmines is too deep for me to disregard it. Know, then, that James had on a pair of new silk breeches, purchased at great cost from his already despondent tailor. His pink coat was lovely. James always was lovely before the war. In addition to all that, there was a lobster mousse. I know it all sounds very difficult, but the fate of nations sometimes depends on far less than a lobster mousse. I discovered the lobster mousse, I alone. I wrote off my supper partner, a woman of doubtful charm but undoubted appetite, and returned later to that mousse. It was the tenth wonder of the world, a mousse en preuve sans reproche. I still dream of it. When it was nearly gone, James appeared in the supper-room, and in a fit of generosity which still brings a lump to my throat, I indicated the remnants of that moose to him. He came, he sat down, he arose hurriedly. I will draw a veil over the painful scene that followed. As I heard James pointing out to a beautiful bean who posed as the head-waiter, a chair in the supper-room was not the best place to put a bunch of grapes. Suspicion centered on the table-waiter, a Teuton of repellent aspect whom James saw laughing. He had a scar over his right eye, and looked capable of anything. Personally, both his partner and I thought it rather funny, but then, as he quite justly observed, it was he who had sat on the chair in question. The last I saw of him was in the cloakroom vowing vengeance on Germans in general, and that waiter in particular. From that day, until one night about ten days ago, I did not see James. His appearance, as usual, was most unnecessary and quite uncalled for, and furnishes the true reason for the failure of the landmines, which, I regret to state, differs in one or two small details from the one rendered to the general in triplicate. Briefly, this was how the matter stood. In one portion of our line we had a trench which was the semi-detached type. Both its ends were in the air, and at times it was most unhealthy. Sometimes it was occupied by us, sometimes by the Germans. At times it was occupied by both, at other times by neither. It was a trench that had an air of expectancy over it, like a lucky dip in a bazaar. You might wander round a traverse one morning and find a German officer hating in a corner. The next morning you might find a young calf or a landmine. You never knew. All this uncertainty, coupled with the fact that the right flank of this trench was fifty yards from the one on its right, and that its left rested on a cesspit, made the general decide on drastic measures. He had another one dug behind, and ordered that it should be filled in and in view of the fact that it was only forty yards from the Germans, it all had to be done at night. Furthermore, he suggested that it would indeed be nice if I could place half a dozen landmines in the filled-in trench, 
Dissembling my pleasure at this horrible suggestion, I retired from his dugout, relapsing hurriedly into a Johnson hole as the sniper opened a rapid and unpleasantly accurate fire on me. As a result of my cogitations, I found myself at about ten that night, crawling up a hedge towards the trench in question, while behind me came a cursing subaltern and several grunting men armed with shovels. In the rear, a dozen stalwarts carried the landmines. Now, the idea of a landmine is very simple. You fill a box of some sort with gun cotton, arranging the lid in such a way that it does not quite shut. You then place the box on the ground with the lid just below the surface, and the arrangement is such that should some unwary person tread on the lid, it promptly does shut, thereby driving a nail into a detonator and sending off the mine. This causes a severe shock to the person who inadvertently treads on it, at the same time causing great excitement among those of his neighbors who remain alive. My idea was to crawl to the trench, fill it in, and arranging the mines in suitable positions, retire and await developments. My difficulty, though it may seem a strange one to some people, was to find the trench, and having found it, to get them in there without being seen. It is astonishing how easy it is to lose one's way when crawling about a large open field at night, and the bit of trench I was seeking for was not very long. The German flares, which are extremely good, infinitely better than, but I will be discreet though it is perfectly true, render the process of walking about close to their trenches a somewhat hazardous one. Should one of these flares fall on the ground, so that you are between it and the Germans, the only way to escape detection is to lie perfectly motionless until it burns out all of which tends to make progress slow. It was while one of them was burning itself out, and I was endeavouring to set a safe course between two shell-holes and a dead German, that James appeared out of the blue from nowhere. He had six German helmets, a few bayonets, and a variety of other trophies, and was making a noise like a wagon full of saucepans on a cobbled road. "'Dear old boy!' he cried, dropping everything on the ground. "'It's the deuce of a time since I've seen you!' "'It is one of the few things for which I can honestly return thanks,' I remarked somewhat shortly. "'Would you like a megaphone to tell them I'm coming up to work on that trench in front?' "'What are you going to do?' he demanded. "'Fill it in and mine it when I can find it.' "'Splendid!' he answered. "'I'm your man. These,' and he kicked the trophies, which promptly gave forth a crashy noise, "'all come from it. I've just been there. I will guide you.' Under normal circumstances, I would as soon have been guided by a young elephant. But as I say, James is difficult. Very difficult. I think there are one or two Germans in it, he whispered as we crawled on. I heard one talking and threw a bomb over the traverse, but as I'd forgotten to light it, it didn't go off. The next instant, he disappeared and the procession came to an abrupt halt. A wallowing noise was heard and James's head came into view again. This is the trench, he remarked tersely. The cesspit end. It was one of the few occasions that night that I laughed. My subaltern extended the men while I entreated James to go. I thanked him for his valuable assistance and earnestly begged him to depart. He could help me no more, and I knew there would be a calamity if he remained. It was all in vain. James was out for a night of it. So ultimately I left him to his own devices and departed to see what was happening. I found everything quite peaceful. Six landmines were lying at the bottom of a bit of trench, where we could get them when wanted, and the trench, all except about thirty yards, was being filled in. The thirty yards would be filled in later and would be mined. One could hear the Germans talking in their trenches, and for the moment an air of complete calm brooded over the scene. No sniper sniped, 
no gunner gunned. A few gaunt trees creaked slightly in the breeze, and an occasional rifle crack came sharply through the night from farther down the line. Then James fell into the trench again. This time he missed the cesspit and hit a German. As I have said before, it was all most annoying. A worrying noise was heard, and everyone fell flat on his face as a rapid fusillade broke out from all directions. Flares went up by the score, and everything became unpleasantly lively. The only person who seemed quite oblivious of all the turmoil was James. He suddenly loomed up in front of me, dragging a diminutive Bosch behind him. "'Do you remember?' His voice was quite shaken with rage. "'The accursed swine-dog of a waiter at the Pitchley Hunt Ball who laughed when I sat on the grapes? I have him here.' "'Lie still, you fool,' I muttered. "'Do you want to get everyone scuppered?' Of course, James paid not the slightest attention. "'I have him here,' he grunted. "'I know that scar, you horrible reptile,' and he shook the little brute till his teeth rattled. "'Are you aware that you spoilt the best pair of silk breeches I ever had, and I haven't paid for them yet?' And with that he threw him into the trench close by. Like James at the ball, he sat down and arose hurriedly. James would select the bit of trench where the landmines were. There was a most deafening roar, as all six went off, and that waiter will undoubtedly wait no more. James himself, I'm glad to say, was stunned, which kept him quiet for a time, but he was about the only quiet thing in France for the next hour. It is my personal belief that in addition to all the batteries on each side which opened fire simultaneously, the mysterious gun which has bombarded Dunkirk let drive as well. For two hours I lay in a wet trench, with a pick in the small of my back and James on top of me. About three we all went home, rather the worse for wear. James said he had a headache and wouldn't play any more. I got one giving my reasons to the general in triplicate. End of section six.